Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 32 of Attitude Check. Today we are continuing our series with local professors. Today we have Gordon Stringer as our guest, and Gordon is a professor at University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. And Gordon is really interesting. He has so many awesome stories to tell, um, but the fact that he doesn't have a real traditional path as far as becoming a professor was really of interest to me. So he started off running his own business, doing some contracting work. Uh, he's definitely Definitely not one of those uh, career academics who had it in his mind from the get-go to become a professor. Um, but because of that, he has so much insight on the real world and how finance works. I really enjoy talking with him. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode with Gordon Stringer. Endeavor to challenge yourself every single day. Engage with your community. Effect change and produce impact. I'm John Mark Ratzbinner. And I'm Brent Sabati. And this is the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We have the conversations that young professionals should be having, but aren't. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Attitude Check. Today we're excited to have Gordon Stringer as our guest. Gordon is the Senior Instructor of Finance at University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. Gordon, thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And like always, we like to start off the podcast with a little icebreaker question. And since you're the Senior Instructor of Finance, my icebreaker question today is, what is your favorite Wall Street slash finance movie and why? Oh my gosh, that is, well, I come from an older model, right, a mold. I mean, I've been around here. So, of course, the Gordon Gecko is the character, right? Michael Douglas is the character that had the biggest impact with me, you know, in my college, post-college days. And I hate to say that because the class I teach against and I think he, I think actually Michael doesn't agree with it, but the greed is good was the mantra, right? Mm -hmm. Greed is good. And we all joked around about it, but seeing, uh, uh, you know, 30 years since that, uh, you know, the, uh, handheld brick micro, uh, cell phone, uh, I don't know if that served us so well. <laughs> so now we have a class here, uh, the ethics of finance, which we kind of challenge that greed is good. Has it been the best for us? It is good in some ways. I, I it, what the theme of that movie is, it does motivate us to achieve. It does motivate us to reach and get out of our comfort zone because we want those things that the American dream uh, supplies us. But, you know, what price is it? Is I guess the question we're asking now is, how do we get more people involved? Absolutely. So Gordon Gecko, and my name is Gordon. So hey, of course everyone teased me about. It. Hey. So Gordon, what is the the story of how you got to where you're at? It is a long and winding road. Uh, I've kind of always been a, a self started doing small businesses, things like that. Uh, if you really, really want to rewind back, it probably goes back to uh, my dad and saying, if you want some extra spending money, get a paper route. And, uh, you know, of course, we wanted to get Mad Magazine and Now and Laters and things like that at the Schuster's Deli. And uh, so we got some, uh, we got the paper route. And so I got the evening route and my brother got the morning route. We started, I think, with the morning route. It was pouring down rain 
the first day of delivering paper. So you want to talk about epic fail. <laughs> Go deliver a paper product in pouring down rain. Uh, but uh, mom had the uh, station wagon, the papers in the back, and we grabbed them and delivered them. And so we started taking over the paper routes, and we, and we made money. And I learned a lot about business at a young age because my dad treated it that way. He said, okay, you have to record who are the prepaids, who are the collections, what are the monies coming in. And he basically had a P&L for us. And... Uh, so uh, I learned a lot about how, how it works, and he would teach me a lot of accounting and finance terms. And we learned some things like embezzlement when we were short money. He said, hey, you're short. And I said, what do you mean you're short? He goes, hey, you don't have all the collections. Where's the rest of the money? I learned this young out. Where's the rest of the money? <laughs> and we had stopped at the Schuster's Deli and had spent some of the collections before turning it in. He said, you can't do that. <laughs> so I think I was like 12 years old. I'm like, oh. Okay, and then we start taking over more of the newspaper areas, and we start talking about monopolies. So this stuff started at a young age, and then I had always had my dreams, you know. And uh, and then in uh, high school, I got into the trades and learned to trade, painting. And then I started a painting contracting business out of college. I didn't go straight into corporate, uh, and I learned a lot on that first that first venture. That was that when we were talking about earlier before we started the podcast of kind of coming in and finding out I'm doing this as a hobby to earn some money and it's turned into a business on me. And now I have employees and vendors and I have responsibilities and it wakes you up pretty quick. <laughs> and then uh, the second, third, fourth chapter is uh, I then went and left that kind of construction contracting and I told people I wanted to get out of it. Uh, some of my some of my clients were disappointed because they liked what we did. Because what we did was we did really high quality work, and we had a very hands on uh, connection with the contractors. So rather than just coming in and painting out a building and saying, "Well, good luck with your punch list," is we came in and we would always meet with them to say, "When do you want us in the building? When we get in? How can we save some money? What are some costs?" And we always I always thought it was important to work as a collaborator with both my vendors and my customers, right? To make sure there was a, a working knowledge. So communication was really important and I learned that, cut my teeth on that. It was very awkward at first, I was young, you didn't get a lot of respect. But what happened is consistency, reliability, responsibility earns you respect, right? The people start to respond to that, they're like, he always gets the job done. He gets a, the punch list always shows up on time. And I learned those were really hot buttons in that industry. And then someone said, hey, you know, you can move into this other industry. And they asked me, what do you like doing? I said, I really like the contracting. I really like the selling. And I got into a professional selling school and did that for a while to learn selling skills. Fantastic operation. Two years of really real professional selling. And, uh, and then someone said, hey, you're really good at that. Uh, you have these contracting skills. And then I got into defense contracting, which in California was exploding under the Reagan years. And uh, I probably learned the most in business because there was such a variety of industries I was involved with every day. I didn't go to the same place. One day I'm on a shipping yard, the next day I'm on an aircraft carrier. One day I'm working with someone who's working with lasers, the next day I'm working with someone who's using uh, gas transport. And the next day you're in a power plant working on uh, high pressure steam, uh, high saturated steam. And then another one you're working with someone who's just got low pressure air. And and so you learned and in that era I was there Boy, it's hard to keep track of things now. Probably six, seven years. Each day, 
was work, but each day I learned a new thing about some industry, whether it was high tech, uh, low tech, heavy industry, uh, shipbuilding, that's a tough industry, uh, to really refined clean industries like clean rooms. And uh, I was lucky enough, it was kind of one of those things, we all get this kind of lucky break. I was lucky enough to be exposed to such a spectrum of the business world and from wrench turners all the way up to the senior management. You had to teach someone how to use the product. Then you had to work with a purchasing person. You had to work with system engineers. And then you had to work with the money people. And you started figuring out that selling wasn't just about what I would call a fab feature advantage benefit, but that it came down to a decision about the money, right? And I started seeing that if you could communicate how your product or services either increases revenue or saves money that it had so much more power at the table than just saying that, you know, I have a whiz bang here and my feature is better than some other competitor. And uh, did all that. Two major changes. One, the internet, I started my own business. The internet uh, helped us grow and I, I got into the auto parts business, do the same thing, distribution. And then at the same time that we were growing, it kind of took it away because the jobber position evaporated within a few years. We used the internet to start growing our, our warehousing and start growing our sales. But the same start, what a jobber is, your audience might know, a jobber is the middleman, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you have a shop, let's say if you're a repair shop, you're doing the repairs. I bring in the parts to you. So my, my work is really to magically make sure inventory shows up when you need it in your shop. And if you don't need it, it needs to magically disappear. And again, it's that communication 101, working with all the different shops uh, that helps. Uh, and then uh, that changed and it really became to a, a completely different model. And got out of that and what we were doing, we were helping people, customers get into information technology and so as that was evaporating, I had to reinvent myself to say, the new field is now technology, and I moved into technology. Well, we all know technology then, what, hit the tech bubble. So all of us who are contractors, like I told Gary here once, he said, do you have any more time to teach some of those classes? I said, we all have extra time. Uh, and then well, I got in over here with the university to teach business uh, rather than so much practice it. And I tell the students, it's a lot easier to talk about making a profit than it is to make one. <laughs> so how did the position with UCCS kind of appear for you? Was that something you were actually looking at is going into teaching and lecturing or did someone come with an opportunity? Uh, I was over here taking classes and then I was also over here doing, uh, by then I was doing IT work and trying to branch out into IT project work. Uh, so I was already, uh, you know, on a main contract with, certain vendors that I worked with on a daily basis for the Y2K build out. And then I started saying, you know, I want to go from, you know, uh, to doing this to kind of specializing in certain areas as my skills got better and better and to be more independent to kind of not just have me on one contract, but have a variety of clients, again, building a business. And uh, of course, the tech rec came and kind of stalled that. And I was over here uh, doing some work, and uh, I had had a class with a professor and had talked about a lot of different things and said, hey, why don't you come over and teach some of that IT stuff that you do? And I said, oh, okay, I'll do that. And uh, uh, the Professor Wigan came in and said, what about teaching some of that corporate finance? 
that you've talked about and how you put that together. And uh, I said, oh, okay. And Venkat had come in the room. He popped his head in the room. I was working on the computers and, and I was also running business. I'd been running businesses. So I knew how corporate finance worked, at least on the small business side. And, uh, and I'd also had exposure to large corporations. And uh, he popped us in and uh, he's like, uh, looked in and I looked at him and he said, yeah, let's have you come on and develop some classes. And so I took it real serious. I thought, you know, it's really been a passion of mine. Both the IT was a passion. I've lost some passion on the IT just because if you're not practicing it all the time, you'll lose those skills because they're, they're so demanding and they're changing so quickly. Whereas I found myself settling more on corporate finance because it had always been there since the beginning. And it just, at one point, at a certain age, you don't multitask as well right as you get older <laughs> you kind of start to refine and say i think this is the path that's really the one i'm the best at and uh i started doing the corporate finance and then started taking over the corporate finance and then when rob left i took over that financial modeling class we brought in we brought in the excel into the classroom and at the same time what's happening is i had a meeting that was invited to up with the regents in denver of what was going to be the future of the business school uh Post, you know, 2000, if you can think back 20 years, you know, at Y2K, a lot of things were changing. Technology was coming in. And I said, there's a new way to do things in the room. It's, it's not the same way. And I remember one of the regions being there. And I said, you know, a student's going to get a, you're going to come in, you're going to get a cubicle, a computer, uh, Microsoft Office, a chair and a phone. And there's no more secretaries anymore. There's no more data people. You're going to have to pull the financial data off of off of the Oracle financial database. At that time, we were using Oracle, right? There's a lot of other different options, but I was particularly working with them. And you have to pull that off and be able to analyze that, then write a report and do a PowerPoint presentation. This is in overheads, and you know, back when I was doing sales presentations, we were sliding, you know, the the uh, the little slides onto the overhead projector, right? Transparency, <laughs> yeah, transparencies, <laughs> right? And so it was a whole new world, and I said. No, you can come in, you customize, and the students got to say, a group of students will get together, they'll have a problem, they got to analyze that problem, they got to find out what those issues are and what are some of the alternatives to be presented and then present probably the best alternative out of several alternatives and say, that's what, and write that up and show it in the presentation and have the, the data in the, in the spreadsheet behind what those financial decisions are going to be based on the finance. And I had come back, and uh, Ben Martz was here at that time uh, with Gary, and he said, oh, we heard about what happened up in Denver. I said, oh. He goes, well, what about building that class? What would that look like? And I said, well, that's what you have for Quant 2020 now. It's changed a little bit, but I came in as it was basically a corporate finance analysis class. It started off that way. And now it's, I think it's more operations, but... Uh, and brought that today. Well, I was excited. I just, I thought, well, this is great. I'd love to teach students how to do this. So we started developing that on top of that. And that just became INFS 1100. And then we're doing the finance 3050. And then we're doing the quant. And I remember some hiring managers said, well, how do you bounce from, from statistics to corporate finance to IT? And I said, how do you not? If you're not, this remember, this is 20 years ago. If you're not moving from information technology to network database and financial analysis, you're not doing that all at once together, uh, then I think you're going to be in an industry or business that's in decline. 
because this is where the future is going. And if you look back, this is what you're you're getting the benefits of those decisions that were made by Venkat, who was the dean at the time, and the faculty to kind of move in that direction. And uh, it's grown enormous from that where I don't do all those things anymore. I focus pretty much on the corporate finance. But we were growing where we needed all those skills. And the students who were coming out were getting picked up by all kinds of different firms because they had this robust skill set. So I think especially nowadays, um, it's kind of interesting how you said things uh, around the you know dot-com, Y2K movement. Mm-hmm. Things after that kind of moved away from the IT sector. But now if you look at corporate finance or just finance as an industry, uh, finance and IT is really tied together. They're almost inseparable at this point, um, especially from an education standpoint. So what do you see as, I guess, the, the major skills that a student should be learning if they want to move into the finance sector? I think it's the same prescription I gave 20 years ago. You've got to be able to, there's a couple of new tools in there that are, that are helping out. Um, obviously, artificial intelligence uh, is, is one, and the speed of payments is, uh, you know, is, is very different. And the friction costs of transaction is extremely low than compared to what it has been in the past for, let's say, post-World War II. You know, it's, it's just phenomenal how technology. But you need to understand, if we want to go back to just some basic tools for undergrad, is you've got to master those skills in Excel. Now, we have, uh, you know, Microsoft, uh, we have analytical tools like Microsoft Business Intelligence, what they call Microsoft BI. You probably both had a BI class here. That's replacing a lot of that graphical, analytical, on-the-fly stuff that maybe you did in Excel, right? Excel is kind of a little bit clunky now compared to the way you can pretty much grab whatever you want off of any 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 webs, website or any database and start to manipulate it fairly quickly without a lot of background skill. But you're still going to have to deal with the Excel modeling. If you're going to be in finance, it's still the tool uh, that you're going to do. You're still going to have to calculate something. You're going to get a spreadsheet, analyze a spreadsheet, work on a spreadsheet, improve a spreadsheet, enhance a spreadsheet. That's still going to be back there. And having those skills quickly, like I would call corporate financial planning and analysis skills, FP&A skills is the designation on it, uh, as compared to like, you know, personal financial planning or CFA certified uh, 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 chartered financial analyst, rather, that you're more on the portfolio side. But in the business side, you've got to be able to move that corporate data and you got to be able to get it down quickly. you got to be able to analyze it and you got to be able to get a intuitive sense of what the data is saying and then quickly be able to communicate that efficiently through whether it's email, whether it's through, uh, you know, broad releases to the public through your website, your other channels, you know, the other social media type of channels or internally, you have to be able to say, this is what I see. This is what I see going on. Here are the alternatives. Uh, This is probably one avenue we should look at and communicate that in business language in a a uh, very condensed communication tool so that someone can hear and say, you can say something like, based on my analysis, you're going to get $2 back for every dollar in. That says a lot. Or we say, this is st- statistically significant here. It says a lot. So when you learn these terms and how to say that in that audience, understanding that that audience understands what you're talking about, uh, you're communicating a lot of value. 
And some of the new tools do that. And then now you're going to start having the AI start to do some of that for you. What does that do? Does it do some positions leave? Maybe so, but then someone has to monitor and work with the AI to still make a human decision that says, does this make economic business sense? And we can't totally trust, you know, everything. Um, and even as you start looking at like transfer payments, uh, someone can break into your system. You know, going back to the Gordon Gecko days, someone had had a key to get in the door to know where the file cabinet was to be able to get to the file. Now that's done without anyone showing up on the property and a lot of damage can be done. And that's kind of the reality. So you still need all those tools. So do you see the, <clears throat> with the introduction of AI and other technologies that are going to do a lot of that kind of analytical work, do you see it more um, as the, the person's responsibility to interpret and communicate those results? Because obviously that AI is only going to do as well as its data points and there's going to be a lot of other intangibles within business. Um, so do you, do you see it as a person of adding that extra, I guess, value to the system? Well, let's just talk about what anytime there's automation, in, in, in my view, and now I'm not operating a piece of equipment, whether that's actually a mill, all right, and now I have a robot doing it. I'm going to obviously save on labor costs. They're very expensive inputs, but then I'm going to need labor somewhere else. Someone's going to have to maintenance that equipment, right? Someone's, and now it's going to have to present, you know, intrusion, uh, someone's going to have to make sure, you know, it is still garbage in, garbage out. So if we're not getting good, clean data and good, clean inputs, we still have variance. There's still variance. And the idea is whatever we do, we've got to keep that variance. I mean, if we're trying to reduce variance, right, we want to keep some people work and make money on the variance. But let's say generally corporations want to, you know, buy the fixed or have, you know, the variance low and sell off that risk, right? Uh, and so as, they, as you do that, you can step back from that process and allow yourself to be a little bit more present as you're seeing it to say, what are some of the creative inputs, right? How creative, and maybe it'll be the point where, and someone who listens to the podcast will probably email me, I have the creative skills in my AI. <laughs> I've eliminated your creativity. Uh, but I, we still re need to rely on people who will be able to see the big picture to be, be able to make some creative inputs, right? To say, well, here, now that this machine's busy doing all the number crunching for us, I can stand back and look and more interpret what does that mean? Where do we go with this? And, uh, and I think you're seeing and, and your listeners, will, if they're older, you know, will probably say if they're younger, they're going to be learning this. But they will say, yeah, that's that's what we need. We need someone to be able to step back and, and interpret what this is that takes those human skills. Like when you look at me, you're sending certain certain signals to me that I'm picking up, you know, subconsciously. These type of things happen when we get people together. Gordon, backtracking a little bit to uh, really your story of how you got to where you're at. Was mentorship something that was a huge impact in your life? Did you have formal mentors? How did that work for you? Uh, I, I have a little bit. Uh, it's a double-edged sword. I have a little bit of a, a, a what they call like a lone wolf self-starter um, independent spirit that I do a lot of work on my own and I enjoy working on my own. And if you're going to be in finance, you have to be able to enjoy that time on your own. The backside of that is 
neglecting to reach out and build those relationships with the mentors that'll help you. Because I've looked at other people who have been more connected to their social network, have more mentoring. I see how, as I've seen their career grow, I say, wow, that group of people has really had an impact on their growth and development from when they were a student. Mm -hmm. Then if maybe you were always kind of, I've always kind of been on my own independent contractor starting a business, this. So you miss some of that. So you have to make sure that you have it in your daily things or your career goals somewhere to say, I need to, I need to actively seek out a mentor and to search around the room or whatever your network, you know, going to the, to the mixer and just kind of having random conversation isn't really networking. It's, Getting involved in volunteer opportunities, getting on a board, uh, working with nonprofits, uh, working somewhere where someone sees you outside the business environment, where you build a business relationship indirectly. And not that you're trying to kind of scheme that, but they just happen naturally. You and I might be on a board and we might be working on something or uh, uh, let's say uh, I was involved with an environmental outfit, and it just so happens this person has to be working there. And so when I think of other people to connect with, I'd say, oh, well, I've already, you know, gone kayaking with this person and risked death. I think I can go have a business. <laughs> I think I can do business with them because I know how they handle it. You know, that another thing is people do this with the golf course, right, is get out on the golf course, uh, get a sport like that, that's social, and they get out on the golf course, and, and you kind of see somebody, how did they handle this particular, you know, with their ethics, their, what's a gimme, and what's a mulligan, and all these type of things, right, start to come out of the woodwork. And and then then you build this network, and you start calling on these people. And I would say when you're building that network, particularly as young, go with the attitude that I want to give more than I expect to receive. Then if you come into it, say, well, how can, who, what relationships can I build that are to my advantage that enhance my career, and f- move me further along? And, and as a young person, sometimes you'll be tempted to look at it that way. Like, I got to get my resources together. I got to put a package together so that I can enhance and leverage my future forward. If you back off a little bit and, and just, you know, uh, be mindful about it and say, what is the best package that I can provide to my mentor or provide to the board where I'll get that mentorship more naturally? And I would find the people who have mentored me the best were the ones that came more natural. And in fact, it's funny that I've gone full circle. Someone who was early on in mentoring, I knew from another organization. And I said, how do you handle it, you know, a customer and this and that? And they said, well, we do this and we do that. And it was just a side conversation. And that person, incidentally, gave me a lot of career advice. I don't think they were out to say, well, we're going to sit down and have our mentoring time. They just mentored me because I was a friend and I had a lot of respect for them because they were successful uh, in commercial real estate and in business overall. And they had a lot of exposure. They were older than me. Um, I also, when I was on a sales team, I picked sales managers that I looked at. I said, wow, they're really good at what they do. And can I go along with a call and help you out? I'll carry the bags. I'll, I'll do something. You know, you want me to I'll package stuff. I'll do some of the you know, lower level stuff for you and, and support so I can watch you how you do that. And so selecting your mentors is important. You want to pick those who are the best of class, best in the breed, whatever you're doing, and then offer more than you expect to receive, I, I would say would be good. And that's, like I said, it's a little bit hard when you're young because you're so ambitious, right? Mm-hmm. But people will see that. They'll see you showed up, you showed up to the meeting, you showed up to the uh, to the event, uh, ready to to help out and lift and move and I'm do. Say that ninety percent of it is showing up. Well, it is. <laughs> that is. That's another thing. Yeah, you got to be there. You got to get out of your office and go meet with people. 
and get out of your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And I think anytime that I've got relaxed in my comfort zone, I've seen kind of my creativity and, you know, the classwork starts to get stifled. I said, what's going on? And usually it means I got to back out. I got to get involved with some other people to get some other stimulus and input or step, do something new. Let's take this class in a new direction. Let me go over and present this idea to someone else. Take their criticism, and when you look at that criticism, look at it as good, healthy advice. There's always a little bit of truth in every criticism. And so, as a young person, it's easy to get our ego involved or our pride and say, oh, wow, somehow they thought less of me or somehow they corrected me. It's important to be where you are. And as a young person starting off, you say, you know, I'm going to take that role of humility and say, there's some truth in it. Even though that might not have been delivered the, the, the best or the most kind way, there's some truth in that. I might want to write that down and take a look at it. And there's some mentoring that happens that way too. So Gordon, thank you again so much for being on the podcast. We're going to transition into our bullet questions here. So name one resource that's helpful to you in everyday life. Reading. Uh, now it's changed. Again, a mentor said, when I first started a business, they said, work hard and read a lot and you'll be successful. And that meant read business books, read business magazines, read the contracts, <laughs> read the tax booklet, read everything you can about business to understand how is it done. Now, at, because of the speed of life, the luxury of sitting down in the easy chair and reading doesn't come as often as it used to. And now I say, listen. Listen to as much as you can. That means listening to professional podcasts. Try to avoid. It's always fun to listen to, you know, you know, the comedy routine or watch some YouTube where someone are doing some clowning around. And it's always refreshing to have a couple of giggles. But I would try to make sure that you make a path, a habit, particularly with like what you're doing here, podcasts, is get on a podcast channel and listen to it because you can work and listen. I happen to have, uh, so what are my little secrets? I have a little one ear bud. You can get it on Amazon, I think, for less than $10. I mean, I'm not here to listen to, you know, you know, Pink Floyd and stereo. I'm here to listen. And I can have it in my ear, and I can be doing your things. And I have my other ear open for situational awareness of what's going on, whether it's the phone or someone coming to the office. And I can just tap it in there or take it out. I listen. But what I have going on there are podcasts. And I'll tell you I have to endorse this. I don't know. Maybe you'll get a sponsorship from is audible mm-hmm. is audible.com. Any business book. If you feel like I don't have time to sit down and read a business book, you can get the, it's, it's like $15 for a subscription, really affordable. And if you, you know, it's like anything, if you pay attention, there's always affordable ways to get more credits or more words for your buck, so to say. But I listen to a lot of business books. I listen to a lot of biographies uh, or autobiographies. It's very, if you want to talk about mentorship, another way to do that is listen to the books that are written by the people that you respect in business. Mm. So if that's a book about Steve Jobs, if that's someone, uh, you know, uh, Jack Welch, then listen to that. If it's, if it's, you know, Bill Gates, then listen to something he's written or something about him. Listen to the titans of business and how is it that they did. And even some of the classic business books that seem kind of a little bit corny because they were written in the 20s and 30s. There's still a tremendous amount of business advice to them that really hasn't changed. So if you want to listen to some Carnegie stuff or, you know, Earl Nightingale, you know, Nightingale, these, these fantastic people from the, from the, you know, 
uh, Industrial Revolution that came about. They've got a lot of stuff there. So I would get, uh, I would say, get a subscription. And you don't have to listen to everything. I still listen to novels, you know, because sometimes you're doing something. You can't listen to a business book because you're preoccupied. You need to listen to someone who's telling a story. But if you're doing your commute, you should be listening to something other than just kind of um, um, music. And that was advice that was given to me years ago when I went to uh, some training seminars. As they said, turn down the music more and turn up. Oh, that time it was like talk radio is how you got this these you know podcasts that didn't have that back then. You got a radio. <laughs> so, what is one book that you would recommend? I don't know if I have one book I would recommend. Um, I know earliest books out of print, it it changed the way I thought about business, was a book called What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School, because I didn't go to Harvard Business School. I said, <laughs> well, what was it? And I, I believe it was Mark McCormick, and he, he's passed now, but he was the one who originally set up, uh, you know, Honor Palmer and Jack Nicholson and, and this idea of, commercializing sports and all of that and it was fascinating to listen to another one and just because of the political overtones it doesn't have as much ring but i'd have to say one of the trump early books was it was just kind of fascinating to see how you know his art of the deal and i know there's a lot of criticism on what was in there but it inspired you to think different (laughs) and um all the books i find that i've heard about the titans of industry, the Gates, the Ellisons, and of course Jobs have just uh, have just always provided excellent lessons. So you can get any of those those biographies in here. How did they do it? How did they? Wh- what did they do? What were the decisions that they made? And who did they look up to? Well, Gordon, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. Um, share the best way to connect with you, and then we'll say goodbye. Email at gstringe at uccs.edu. Gstringe, there's an E on it, at uccs.edu. Awesome. Well, again, thanks so much for being on the podcast, Gordon. This is John Mark. And this is Brent. Signing off. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Attitude Check. For me personally, I feel like Gordon is a good example of what it's like to mix learning with real world experience and also storytelling. I remember sitting in his class, I learned probably the most out of my other classes because he was able to relate everything to telling stories. And this conversation, I really took away his advice for how the finance industry is changing and how young professionals and college students can adapt to their learning so that they have skills that are really applicable to what the industry is doing nowadays. So whether that's finance, quantitative analysis, information technology, um, I really enjoyed his insight on all of that. Be sure to check back every first and third Tuesday of the month for a new episode of Attitude Check. And make sure you follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn to stay up to date with all of our new content. And be sure to tap that subscribe button on your favorite podcast hosting platform, because let's face it, you know you want to. Thanks so much to our listeners that share our episodes on social media. It really helps us to find more listeners just like you. And we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at attitudecheckpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time.